You're listening to the Joyful Warrior Podcast with yours truly, Tiffany Justice. Join us as we talk about the issues that are impacting you and your family in America today. Let's get started. Hello, Joyful Warriors. Today is a real treat. Today we are joined by Luke Rosiak. He is an investigative reporter for The Daily Wire who broke the Loudoun County school bathroom rape story. It's quite a thing to be known for, Luke. As a fellow with Peter Schweitzer's Government Accountability Institute, he spent two years researching and writing a new book on the problems in K-12 schools called Race to the Bottom, Uncovering the Secret Forces Destroying American Public Education. Welcome to the Joyful Warrior podcast, Luke. And tell us, what is it? what was it like to be in Loudoun County in the middle of everything happening with schools during COVID? Thank you for having me, Tiffany, and thank you for everything that you guys are doing. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, this has been a long road with this book. I mean, I was, I've been writing it for two years, so even before COVID, even before, you know, people started talking about critical race theory. Um, but I live right near Loudoun County. I live in Fairfax County, and both of them are, you know, I, I saw the problems in my own schools a couple of years ago. And I realized that bad things happen when no one's paying attention. And for a long time here in Fairfax and Loudoun, no one was paying attention, just like everywhere else across the country. So it's been remarkable to see the wake up happening, you know, between really the, the teachers union shutting down schools because they didn't want to work. And then as a side effect of that, we get to see all the curriculum that they're shoving down our kids throats. And there was just like this remarkable wake up. And it's my hope that uh, after writing this book, you know, that that people don't go back to sleep because this is really the most important thing that government does is local schools. And so many of us just never really paid attention to it for the longest time. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I agree. And and so um, I was shocked. I mean, it takes a lot to shock me now. Um, but I but I, there were some moments in your book that I was shocked a little bit. Um, I think when you start seeing all of the pieces come together, and we can just kind of talk about that for a second. You know, we had COVID, right? And that kind of, you know, obviously, our, our country kind of screeched to a halt. And then um, we had the we had the killing of George Floyd. And, and that brought us to a new pressure point in America with a lot of, of civil unrest. And then these two things happening really did expose this fringe ideology that we're seeing festering and being, being cultivated in our schools. Um, and, and you work to expose some of that. So um, tell us, give us a little, you know, I don't want to go, uh, give us kind of an overview. Like what is happening in these schools? What are you seeing? Because I think connecting the dots between some of the, the, the money, the way the money is coming in, the way the money is being spent, right? The, the, the grifters, the people that are making a lot of money and driving a lot of this work. Um, and, and it's interesting to see how some of that starts. So maybe we'll start a little bit, if we can talk about some of this divisive ideology. How does it start, Luke? How, do, how does it enter into our public education system in a way where it's actually being, you know, the, being put into action in the schools, Um when when so, when would you say that it really started ramping up? It's interesting because at the root of all of this is really self-serving administrators who want to cover up for their incompetence. Schools schools exist for one reason, which is to to help kids learn, you know, math, writing, science, and they're not doing a good job at that, and they haven't been for a long time. So that's the most important thing. It's more important than, you know, politics, race, all this. Is schools are not teaching kids very well. Um and so what they try to do is, is at some point they gave up on even trying to do better. And what they settled on was moving numbers around in this sort of Enron-esque game of statistical manipulation to make themselves look better. And they did that really starting especially in 2001 with the No Child Left Behind bill, which just required transparency. It required tra um, publishing test scores and graduation data. And so that's a good thing, and it made sense. I mean, the Internet was <clears> – we were kind of entering the Internet age in 2001, and so it made sense to publish all this. What people didn't expect is that when those negative – you know, those, those poor uh, test results or graduation rates came out, what a normal person would do is if you felt like yours wasn't as good as the school district down the road, you would work to do better. Right. But that's not what the school districts did. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> they started trying to make themselves look better by lowering standards. I have to the stop. graduation rate Yeah, I have to stop low, you. Make it easier to graduate. Right, 100%. I, I have to stop you. And I want you, so so if the graduation is too, rate is too low, they're going to make it easier to graduate so they can push those numbers up. And let me tell you, I served as a school board member. 
I have said before, the only thing that the public school district does better than protect themselves is celebrate themselves. And when you put those two <laughs> things together, it is a driving force. I mean, you know, uh, there's a gentleman who wrote a, a um, his name is John Stone. He wrote an article. It's called uh, Critical Race Theory is an Excuse for Educational Failure. And um, what you're saying is very, very true when we see Chicago Public Schools celebrating uh, the highest African-American achievement graduation rate last year, and they didn't even have kids really in school that much. Oh, I mean, it come on, people. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible because these kids are graduating and, and, and they don't have the tools to be successful in life. I mean, two-thirds of our kids are not reading proficiently. So continue, please. So they, they are covering up the fact that they can't figure out how to do their jobs and they are now uh, putting in things that where there's no real way to measure anything, is there? There's no, there's no way to hold them accountable. There are no metrics for social-emotional learning. That's exactly right. And that's the common thread here with all the progressive uh, initiatives in education is what they really do is take away objective, the ability to engage in objective measurement. And yeah. so it's all an excuse to, to cover the fact that kids are not learning. And this is not designed to help the kids in any way. It hurts the kids. It's designed to help the administrators. And so what my book details, because I didn't want to approach this from sort of a culture war angle, I wanted to st take a step back and see how did this come to be that school districts just started operating for the benefit of various special interest groups instead of kids? Um, if that's what's going on. And what I found is that in, over the last couple of decades, there's been a, a number of schemes, like you said, that the school districts are always just trying to make themselves look better. And the latest one is CRT, because it says, you know, writing is worship of the written word is an attribute of whiteness. Um, you know, there's no such thing as objectivity. Um, one of the parts of black culture, one of these consultants claims, is not caring if you get the right answer. And so you have all these, um, you know, it's, it's CRT is just the latest in a series of excuses or, or uh, techniques used by administrators uh, to cover their failures. And I think that's one of the most important things that parents should ask when they go to their school board meetings and you hear them talking about all this stuff is, how is this going to increase academic performance and what's the data for that? Well, we're in such a hard time with that, Luke, and I'm sure, you know, we're in this place where when I talk to parents and we say, okay, let's drill down into the data in your district, because that's really what we know. We're sending our kids to learn um, and, and to be educated and it's not happening, right? And so how do parents hold their school district accountable? And you want to look at the data. The last data that most districts have is from 2019. It wasn't good then. It's worse now. Um, and now with, you know, I, I, uh, two friends of mine, Andrew Gutman and Paul Rossi, just wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed. We had them on the podcast a, a couple um, of weeks ago. And um, what they were sharing about some of the things that are happening in the private schools um, and, and what we're seeing, one of the teachers they quoted in their article said, um, DEI used to be something on the plate and now it is the plate. So now in public schools, you're, you're right, the kids aren't learning, and now it's they're, they're really, their diet in school, let's say, everything that they're consuming in school is now laced or totally diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, social justice, you know, I mean, before we turn the kids into social justice activists and warriors, can we teach them how to read, right? And so... Tell us, how how does this work within the school system? Can you talk a little bit about the people that are kind of, the, the people, the consultants and the groups and the people that are coming in from outside that are coming into our schools and I know they're making a lot of money. How are they doing their work? How is this happening? Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of money. And, um, you know, it is sad because the best way, if you want all these racial, if you want to improve the outcomes of inner city kids, which we all do, the best equalizer is a competent education in the basics. And if, you know, we probably wouldn't be seeing so much in, uh, racial inequality in this country and so much poverty in their, in their cities if the school districts had competently taught these kids over the last couple decades. Um, but what you do is you have these consultants who have made a ton of money and really the most important one throughout my whole two-year investigation, what I found is this guy named Glenn Singleton, uh, he runs a firm called the Pacific Education Group. And if you've ever heard in your school district the phrase courageous conversation, you've got to have courageous conversations, that's his trademark. That's him. And you should be worried if you hear that uh, phrase in your school district. But he's a great example of this, this class of consultants because <clears throat> get his background. This is a black guy who went to a prep school, a Jewish prep school, where he was head of the horseback riding club. And then he went to an Ivy League school. And he worked like on a fancy job in Madison Avenue. He's not exactly, you know, from the streets. 
Uh, he developed a chip on his shoulder that apparently compelled him to show everyone that he's authentically black. He said, I worried that I wasn't black enough and I'm going to show everyone that I'm black. So pretty soon the guy that knew less about inner city culture than almost anyone was making millions of dollars billing school districts for courageous conversations where he told them that being authentically black means being late, not caring if you get the right answer. Being white means valuing reading and writing. And this guy was hired by at least 500 of the 13,000 school districts. Um, he's like a malign Johnny Appleseed just spreading his toxins from Boise to Wichita. So that's really how this began 20 years ago. Um, and then you have a number of, you know, basically consultants who fall into a similar mold. They're usually not. <laughs> um, it, it, what really it, it baffles me is, so, you know, the, the reason for focusing on race in school, the only legitimate reason is that you do see racial disparities in performance. Some of the poor black kids in the inner cities are not doing well. Well, we well, see, but we see disparities. Day school doesn't know how to help them. But Luke, we see disparities across all races and poverty is the driver of that. Right. There's a website, educationconsumers.org, that you can go to. You can look up your state. I just want to mention this for our listeners right now. If you're listening to this, and you can see how the districts in your state are doing based on – the, the poverty level of the students and and race is is not is not the determinant factor it is poverty so anyway I'm sorry to interrupt I just wanted to no say you're that. absolutely right and that was kind of another side effect of No Child Left Behind is they broke out the test scores by race and so what you saw is these racial disparities in the mandatory forms that were released and so that's what they focused on but there was no you know, it didn't require you to break out test scores better all based on whether kids had a two-parent household or whether they were chronically truant and things like that. Right. And so those are the factors where you see a really direct statistical correlation. Um, But so what you have is these people like Nicole Hannah-Jones from the 1619 Project. Um, She's from Iowa, you know, grew up with a white mom. She has a similar background with Glenn Singleton. She doesn't know how to help these kids in inner city Baltimore. They don't know anything about them. Um, but for some reason, these school administrators have, are, have been convinced that they're the experts and they're going to teach everyone what it means to be black. What keep in mind, kids in inner city Baltimore don't need to be told what's they got a lot of problems, but not knowing what it means to be black is not one of them. So the, you know, this bizarre idea that people need to come to school to be taught what it means to be a member of their race really did start taking over school districts. And it's not just after George Floyd. It was quite a while sooner. I mean, all these things like white privilege that are kind of common now to hear about. Ten years ago, K-12 schools through these consultants were one of the only places you'd hear about them. Um, But, yeah, it comes back to why did these loony consultants, why were they invited in by the administrators? It's because it served a purpose, which is to say none of the none of what we're doing here matters. You know, none of the test scores are real. There's no such thing as objectivity. And so it's a very cynical thing. On It's an almost nihilism on the part of the school administrators, right? Nothing is real. Nothing is mad. Nothing matters. And then on the part of these consultants, it's a deeply debilitating, pessimistic worldview where, you know, we're, we're living under white supremacy and everything is horrible. And, you know, what one of the things that it really bothers, that keeps me up at night is this isn't about Democrat versus Republican. It's we just want we all want kids to be happy. And this is not making kids happy, especially when, um, you know, there's an example in the book where, so there's, in addition to the consultants, you have these activist groups like Learning for Justice from SPLC, right, or the Zen Education Project. SPLC is the Southern Poverty Law Center for people. We try not to use too many acronyms, or if we do, we try to define them, because that's one of the things, Luke, that I think has kept parents kind of away and out of the education system is this edu-speak, and it's like, oh, well, you don't, you can't even, you know, you don't even have the the guide for the acronym, so where do you even start? So Southern Poverty Law Center, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and I want to come back to that because it's a yeah. great point. Um, but yeah, you know, there, there's an example where there's this lesson plan from the Zinn Education Project, which is named after Howard Zinn, this socialist historian who wrote a lot of factually problematic books, um, where she shows has these kids in inner city D.C. watch a couple movies and then ask them what they should do about coronavirus and gets them to say, well, it's America's fault. We need to put every member of the U.S. government in prison and then we need to abolish capitalism so there are no secrets present. Um, so it's this bizarre incitement to violence and insurrection, if you want to say that, um, and really just overthrowing capitalism. 
And the kids in that school, uh, I, I forget the statistic, but it's something like only 20% of them are proficient in reading. And so this teacher basically preyed on these people, these kids that really don't know anything. They're, they're way, way, way behind academically. And she gets them to say they want to, you know, uh, get rid of capitalism and put everyone in prison. It, it's, it's like preying on these kids. Yeah, can they who, spell capitalism? Exactly. They literally had to watch movies. Um, but, but I want to get back to before I get, forget about it. Yeah, your point about the, how they keep people out of education discourse. You're always, you were thought, so they use these acronyms and this fancy language. And it has one of two effects. Either you think, I'm bored with it. I'm sure I could understand it because I'm smart, but it just seems boring, really dry, like a textbook. I'm going to go to sleep. Or you feel like, oh, they must be really smart because I don't understand. They must be smarter than me. Right. And that's not true at all. They're not. I, I took the time. I had the luxury of over the last two years um, being paid to kind of, even before coronavirus, really just go deep on all this stuff. I had the time to read all the critical race theory papers. I had the time to read to learn the definitions of all the acronyms. They are incredibly vacuous ideas that they put this fancy terminology to cover how stupid it all is. Yeah. It means almost nothing. Um, this is stuff that uh, really wouldn't even pass like for a high schooler's like term paper. Yeah. And they're making these fancy seeming things and so, like, culturally responsive, sustaining education, it's got that fancy acronym CRSE, and no one really knows what it is. Um, the Wall Street Journal wrote that it meant that, you know, kids could do rapping in school if that's what makes, helps them learn better. Maybe they could rap to, you know, do a rap that helps them learn, like, the periodic table. Or okay, well, I'm just going to say from a mom's perspective, like, I taught everything by song. So if, if it takes a, if, if a rap is what makes the kids remember what they need to remember to, to be successful, I'm fine with that. Do you know what I mean? Like, exactly. But, and, but let's make sure that the learning is the focus, like, that the right. outcome is the focus. That's exactly right. And so the Wall Street Journal, it turned out, uh, was making the same mistake as many parents did, which is not understanding what this actually means. So I read the official papers where this New York state policy was from, and it actually said that's racist to do to have kids learn the periodic table through math, through rap, because you're having them focus on a white thing, which is science or math. That's so stupid. And the real way to be culturally responsive <laughs> is to have them, quote, rap for their own rap for the sake of rapping okay. so so this is the official policy of the new of new york state is that kids should come to school and rap for the sake of rapping but you should not teach them math or science because that's quote indoctrinating them into the dominant system I, so when I mean, we teach them <laughs> skills to get jobs we say that they say that's causing them to assimilate into the workforce where they're of use to us um so, so, so giving people tools to be successful in their life in America is, 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 is bad, is basically what we're being told. Teaching these kids to read, to be able to think for themselves. Um, I, you know, I have to be honest with you, Luke, I had a really hard time with the periodic table. I remember, I think I had like a brain block and I remember my teacher looking at me and saying like, you're going to memorize this like one way or another, or you're going to fail. Like you have to memorize it. I wish there had been a wrap for the periodic table. I would just like to say it would have maybe helped me. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean the idea that somehow giving these kids the tools that they need to be able to do whatever it is they want in life, um, is, is bad is shocking to me. And the idea that you're going to pigeonhole them into some area or group think about what it is they should be doing or how they should be participating is really sad to me because I think what it ends up leading to is obviously less individualism, but less unfolding of what, what the, who that child really is and what they can accomplish in their lives, right? I mean, it's, not, it's certainly not empowering them. When did we, and I'm sure you've seen this over the last two years, when did we lose this idea that children gain a lot of confidence from seeing themselves be successful at accomplishing something? <laughs> um, because there's a, there, there's a lot to be said for that, right? But that doesn't seem like to be a focus anymore, the idea that the children actually learn skills and building that toolbox that they would build confidence and success from that yeah uh you know they're trying to do this thing you know standards-based assessments now which is like you know instead of getting an a you get a well so one of the things they try to do is evaluate based on subjective measures and so there's a you know it's called anti-racist grading and it right. says um you can't expect a kid to 
know that one plus one is two and then say that it's two, he may express it in a different way in his culture. And so there could be 99% of the kids in school who don't know that one plus one is two, but they really do know it. And it's just something about their culture. This is, this comes straight from one of these, um, you know, uh, education, um, count, you know, like national school board association, right. they have a million of these groups and they have them for like the superintendents for like English lots of associations. Yeah. <laughs> lots of associations. So I think it was the math teacher association that was trying to say like, because of their culture, they won't know how to tell you one plus one is two, but you have to let them like act it out or perform it in yeah. a play or something God, like God that. help us, really. God help us, honestly. I don't <laughs> so, know what to say about that. And I just think it's such a shame. You know, childhood, I, I think people have forgotten that children are not just small adults. They are actually children. Developmentally, they are children. They are immature. But that is the nature of the game, people. They are children. <laughs> and so they're developing and learning. And to me, to take this time in their lives when they're like little sponges and they're absorbing so much information and they're able to learn so much and to push them through this time in their lives, not giving them what they need in order to be able to be successful in life, it's a crime. It's criminal. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, I, I mean, we're funding failure and it's fraud. I don't know when it stops. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to just take a second to say thank, thank you to Peter Schweitzer for helping. I mean, the fact that you got to take the past two years when all of us were kind of reeling to really dig into this and to start showing what's happening in America and to really get it on paper and document it, I think, in, in, in such a timely manner is so important. Um, so I'm really grateful um, that you were given the opportunity to do this. Yeah, and I think he'd really appreciate that. I will say with for Peter Schweitzer, he has this knack for being kind of like two years ahead of yeah. anything. Remember, uh, I, some people don't even know, like he was kind of the one who was writing about like Hunter Biden before Joe Biden even ran for president. Yep. Um, so he kind of has this track record over his many excellent books. Yeah, I've read Clinton being Cash. ahead of the curve. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so when I was pitching this book to him back in like 2019, the whole pitch was like, what if school boards, suburban school boards were not actually the most uh, – you know, obscure, boring thing imaginable, because at the time, that's what everyone thought they were. Right. And I became convinced that they were kind of actually and he and he, you know, he loved that idea. But part of it was how counterintuitive it was. And, and so, for yeah, for, I mean, it, there's a lot of bad guys in this in this sector. I mean, the philanthropic foundations are one that I want to get to. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about, let's talk about that. But, so explain the role of philanthropic foundations in, in, in all of this, in our race to the bottom in American education. The philanthropic foundations are so when you talk about those, you know, those associations, but then also these activist groups and you may have like local groups in your school district or some of them are, um, you know, this the the national ones like Zen Education Project. Um, some of those are basically like fronts for the philanthropic foundations like Ford Foundation, Kellogg Foundation, Rockefeller. Gates so Foundation. Yeah, exactly. And so people kind of know that Gates was behind Common Core. Um, and that's what, you know, however long ago that was, 10 years ago, we saw that. So, the, you know, education is like the better part of a trillion dollars a year. Like, how can anyone like steer this giant ship in such a coordinated fashion? That's what Gates did 10 years ago. He's got like 42 states to get on board for this thing. Um, 10 years later, the answer is really the same thing with the CRT. How did all the school districts start doing this racial stuff at the same time? Um, it's because of the philanthropic foundations and these guys, you know, you, you might not think about them often. Maybe you like, you hear that they, you know, funded an art museum or you hear their names on PBS, you know, this segment brought to you by the Ford foundation. Um, but these are really creepy groups. Um, for the last hundred years, they have been dedicated to pushing a bizarre racial, uh, bizarre racial ideas back in the 1930s. Their whole thing was eugenics. And how can they get rid of minorities through various horrible techniques? Um, you know, some of the Nazi uh, ideas actually came from New York, from these philanthropic foundations. Uh, they the sound 19th... lovely. That's a lovely way to start. <laughs> in the 1960s, they tried to segregate New York City's schools. In the 1990s, they were still trying to get rid of minorities, but this time by helping them get abortions that were racially focused abortions. Um, so there, you know, the way they talk about it changes over time, but you can go back and read about the foundations in the early 1900s and it's, it is horrible, horrible stuff. So Luke, and I want to stop you for a second. Cause I want to read a quote from your book. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll talk about how, how these people are doing their work. So you said, the, you said throughout the stories in the book, there, he wants, you wanted to explore two ideas. The first is that racial politics are more than a controversial topic. They can be used as a tool to win administrative battles, distract angry parents, and even cover up inequality. We consistently get these kinds of conflicts wrong. We look too hard at the controversial ideas without asking, what do the powerful have to gain? We misread their decisions. We misinterpret who are they, they are benefiting. Sometimes well-meaning educators want to make things fairer. More often, the well-meaning become weapons in political and bureaucratic battles. So our kids are trapped in the middle, and the foundations want to do what now? Well, the foundations have been <clears throat> pushing these horrible racial ideas that have the effect of making minorities perform poorly. Uh, you know, by, by failing to help them, uh, they wind up perpetuating whatever inequality there is. Um, you know, and in the 1960s, they basically said, well, we want to, because this was obviously by the by 1960s, the foundations were starting to use this. They went from the eugenics language to the civil rights language. So they started talking like liberals. They said, well, what we want to do is integrate New York City schools, but first the blacks need to prove themselves. And if they do okay, then they can integrate. And But so what they did is the black parents said what they wanted was schools focused on the basics and have a lot of strong discipline there. But the Ford Foundation had them do this progressive thing where the kids can do self-directed learning and teach them whatever they want. Um, and of course, you know, they're basically subjective grading, all the progressive stuff. So none of the kids learned anything and it failed. And as a result, they said, well, sorry, blacks, I guess you're not ready to integrate yet. Um, so I won't speculate about the foundation's motives now, but certainly the effect is the same as it's perpetuating this, um, you know, tiered society with them at the top, the elite, you know, rich guys in New York City. And then these minorities are um, failing and being failed by these schools. Um, so... And they don't want to admit the failure, so they just keep changing the metrics so they can't own the harm. Exactly. And it really is like a doctor. If you went to the doctor because you had a fever and he just said, well, he broke the, broke the thermometer and said, congratulations, you don't have, have a fever, a fever anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you so know, they, one of these guys, Kellogg, you know, from the cereal, you know, the cereal, one of the cereal brothers, the Kellogg guy. Yeah, it's nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, back in whatever, 1901 or whatever it was said, you know, basically he had two things that really animated him with this foundation, which is his horrible, his hatred of blacks, but then his jealousy of what he called Orientals and that if we don't do something about the Oriental problem, they're going to displace us at the, at the, at the top, at the elite. Well, and you've and seen so firsthand discrimination, the discrimination at Thomas Jefferson high school. I mean, that you have seen firsthand has been mind blowing to me. Um, if, exactly. I don't know if you want to, can you like just give people a quick overview about that if they don't aren't familiar with that? Yeah. Because so I, I mean, literally 120 years later, it's the exact same thing. They're obsessed with these things about black underperformance and how can we get rid of the Asians because they're showing us up. And so that's what we've seen at TJ, which is, you know, the school board broke the law by um, getting rid of the tests. And this is TJ Thomas Jefferson is here in Fairfax County, the number one ranked math school in the country. Um, Obviously, Fairfax is right outside D.C. We've got like Northrop Grumman here. We've got obviously the Pentagon. We've got all kinds of really important things that keep our country safe. And um, we rely on that brain trust. And one of the ways that we feed that is this really smart TJ kids. Now, most kids will not want to go to TJ because you've got to do like eight hours of homework a night. Like most kids just have no interest in going. It's not like something that they all aspire to. Um, it takes a really special kind of kid to actually want to go there. Um, so they became obsessed, the school board, that there was too many Asians and not enough blacks and Hispanics. And so they got rid of the test. They said there were, it's not fair to use a math test to decide whether you can, you're good at math. Um, and so we're now in the first year of that and they actually are having to give out remedial math lessons at the, at the best math school in the country. Um, so this is basically the same thing that we've seen with uh, with Lovell in Lowell in uh, San Francisco and Stuyvesant in New York City and a number of magnet schools across the country. And we also see it on a smaller scale with gifted and talented programs um, in, in all these districts. It's this assault on the highest performers, this idea that you shouldn't be. They don't like individuality and people being and exceptionalism. And they don't want to see ex by by showing how well children can do in school. It only shows how badly some other children are doing. And instead of focusing on that, you know, Luke, I always liken it from my time on school board to a cake. 
<clears throat> and I always think of the education system as a, a cake, and inside the, the the meat of the cake, the the you know the cake part <laughs> is um, crumbling. It's dry and it's stale and it's crumbling. And instead of going back and saying we need to really fix this cake, all they do is just put more frosting and more icing and all this other stuff because they don't want to show that the cake is crumbling. And one of the things that a, a school like TJ shows, where you have students who are excelling, who are capable of these things, is the fact that other children are not doing that. And 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 then to to push it to a further extreme. You know, why Why aren't we celebrating creating these children and helping these children grow into these brilliant, as you said, you know, people that are needed in our country to do such important work to keep our country safe? Um, you know, it's it's very sad to me to see that, that instead of embracing individualism and exceptionality, it just seems like we just want to, you know, group everyone together based on whatever color their skin is, um, right? And, and just say, well, now you're just part of this group and, and this is what we want for you. And, and who in the we, I guess, is maybe the Kellogg Foundation. I don't know. I mean, right. Like, who are yeah, these people? And, yeah, exactly. And, you know, people. So I always called it equity rather than CRT. I mean, back when I first started writing this in 2019, very few people had the, heard, you know, the phrase CRT. But I knew that what the schools call it is equity. Yeah. And so I think that's a simple message that you look, your school district is not going to say they're doing CRT if they ever say the word equity. What that is, is what we think of as CRT. Equity is not equality. Equity is uh, a horrible concept that is perfectly exemplified by this Asian, you know, Thomas Jefferson magnet school thing. Um, a normal, sane, positive person would look at those hardworking kids who are succeeding in math and say, if I want what they have, how can I be more like them? Um, what, a, what a cynical CRT equity negative person will do is say, how can I get rid of those people so that no one knows it's possible to be that smart? Wow. And that is, you know, the, that is what really the whole education establishment has, um, you know, bought into that notion. But crazy. look, I mean, you know, they're, and of course they're obsessed with coronavirus, but the last time, you know, one of the big pandemics we had or endemics was polio, um, you know, 70 years ago. Well, that was solved by a kid from one of these magnet schools in New York City. Right. And he was the son of immigrants. Um, and, you know, he was, he studied science goodness. all yeah, day. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, bad things happen when you devalue objectivity and merit. People die, you know, whether it's through war or disease or um, lack of access to medical advancements or life-saving technologies. And so, you know, these people with their kooky ideas, it's like you can make fun of them all day. And there's a lot in this book where it's just like, no way do they say that that's insane. But at the core of it, and you know, once you get over laughing at them, it's kind of frightening what they're doing. Um, so and two, the fact that, yeah, mm -hmm. no, so two things I just want to I don't want to I, I, I want to talk about unions with you. Um, as a school board member, I saw that unions had undue influence in our children's education. I don't think that parents really have any idea. Um, how many different facets of their children's lives are controlled by the unions. Um, I was shocked to see it. I used to sit in an executive session and I'd watch, and here I am, a school board member, one of five. I watched the district uh, bargain for the district, and I watched the union bargain for the adults, for the, the teachers, uh, normally the teachers that were sitting at the table, to be honest with you, at doing, you know, but in gen because I don't think the rest of the teachers sometimes even have any idea what the union's doing. Um, and I watched parents and kids be the last ones to be considered. There was never any thought given. So um, that was my experience seeing it. You know, Moms for Liberty, we really felt like parents needed a seat at the table and they didn't have one. And if they weren't going to pull one up for us, we were going to bring our own chair. That's why Moms for Liberty, right? And so now we have like almost 80,000 members across the country. We're still growing. It's awesome. I know you spoke at one of our meetings recently, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, here in Loudoun County. That was a great event. That's awesome. And so, you know, getting information out to people. But the parents have seen the unions, you know, keep our schools closed for, keep our kids masked, the ridiculous quarantine policies. I mean, they've really shown themselves, right? Yeah. I mean, so all these special interest groups that they run the schools for the benefit of all these people, not for kids. And these people are willing to inflict emotional, physical, and sexual abuse on kids in order to advance their own interests. And so, you know, emotional, we have the CRT stuff that really makes these kids develop anguish and fear and, you know, negativity. Self-hate. The physical mm -hmm. abuse, the, the masking um, and sexual abuse, like we saw in Loudon, where if it'll, you know, be embarrassing to the school district, they will just 
conceal it and allow another girl to go on to be sexually abused. That kind of thing happens all the time with discipline too, where they don't want the discipline stats to look bad. So they let kids get assaulted in school. Yeah. Um, but the teachers unions are the biggest one, as you said, I mean, for the longest time they ran schools and they still do um, to employ teachers rather than to educate children. And it is not the job of a school does not exist to employ teachers. They exist only for one reason. Wait, which is to, to... <laughs> schools aren't a jobs program. <laughs> it seems like a jobs program now. Yeah, um, but Randy Weingarten, you know, she's the head of the union. She has no kids. If she can have such an influence on schools, then, you know, you should too. And that's why it's it's so uh, encouraging to see the Moms for Liberty because it's not like some niche niche thing. Like, you, you know, in D.C., everyone's got their obscure lobbying angle. But this is not exactly some tiny, arcane special interest. We're like talking about anyone who's ever procreated parents we're a pretty big block we matter we do um, we do matter and and <laughs> and i think you know what we saw in virginia was so awesome while everyone was celebrating and we celebrated right along with you glenn youngkin's win in virginia what we were celebrating was some of the school board wins that we saw with our with our uh districts in uh with our counties in virginia and across the country on that day and it was so wonderful to see i think in bedford county uh, our chapter supported a uh, candidate that was a writing candidate that ran against an incumbent that had been there for 12 years that was the chair. And so <laughs> when that happens, that was like our moment, right? We were like, yes. People are like, you excited about going young? And we're like, yes, but we're really excited about this race in Bedford County, Virginia. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And no, and I, I didn't, that's an inspiring story. And it also, you know, this idea that what happens in, you know, Bedford County is actually more important than some of the things that are in the news. That is so true. And that is kind of one of the big issues here. And I think people are realizing it now, but radicals evade accountability through anonymity. Yeah. So the real people that we need to care about, you know, sure, everyone's got their opinion on Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever. But look, I mean, what what any of us think as the, about the president probably doesn't really matter, right? It's kind of a waste of time for us to, like, shoot our mouths with our name. What if we all spent the, the amount of time that we spend ranting about national politics and focusing on where our voices could actually make a difference? Whether it's learning about what's going on in our local school district or town or county um, or doing something about it. Um, because it turns out that some of the people who are really behind some of the creepiest, most important stuff, they don't have famous names. They have names like, you know, Glenn Singleton or uh, David Kirkland, who did that kind of crazy New York State policy. Um, you know, these are people that aren't famous, and it, it takes a lot of work to kind of learn about them. Um, but that's kind of the whole uh, – if there was a uh, – a brilliant scheme here what it was is they kind of directed all of our attention to the flashy national stuff yeah and then just kind of waltzed in through the back door and took our country through you know local school boards and stuff that no one was paying attention to but which it turns out was more important than absolutely all so absolutely yeah. it's the it's the, it's the it's the everyday people where the, it's the really bad stuff is happening and uh at the local level it's people that aren't famous but the good news is that you know, we can make the difference here. We can't really count on someone else to parachute in and save us. It, it oftentimes will involve us, you know, a group of moms or dads getting involved and in learning about what's going on in our district because we, we just can't count on anyone else doing it for us. No, we can't and we shouldn't. And to be honest with you, we've abdicated our responsibility in that area. I said, you know, I spoke at a, something this weekend and I said, you know, with parental rights come responsibilities. I think for a time schools made it really, really easy on purpose, made it really, really easy to just kind of disengage. And we have to get more engaged and involved. We need to be paying attention to what the kids are learning. doesn't mean you have to be a perfect parent or have a perfect past either. What you said I think is so important is that like everyone who has a kid has a say. Everyone who does doesn't have a kid as a say too, right? I mean, we're all paying taxes and that gets to the last thing I want to talk to you about that I think is important and you talk about in the book, but I want to talk about it again. Schools are not underfunded um, and, and throwing more money and more money at these schools is not going to solve the problem. So can you talk a little bit about what you learned about school funding? I know quite a bit about it, but I'd love to hear from a national perspective, like the schools are, are the schools have money, don't they? Yeah, they absolutely do. And and they know they do. And they know that when you see these negative statistics, money is not going to fix it. Um, so, you know, we spend about 17 grand. This was before the pandemic per child per year. Um, on average and, in Florida, we spend seventy five hundred dollars a year on average per kid. Yeah. So it's seventeen thousand nationally. Um, 
So, uh, but in places like DC, it's like $29,000 a year. So if you're like a single mom in DC in the ghetto, I mean, you may feel like you're a victim or that the government doesn't give you much, but if you got four kids, you know, we're spending, uh, you know, $80,000 on your kid's education. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, this is, this is money that you could pay a personal tutor just to come to your house every day. Yep. Um, here in Fairfax County, the, the dishonesty of it really shot. I think people don't, there's a level of trust in our society where people don't think that they would just straight up lie to you the way that they do. And they, since they tell us all the time that schools are underfunded or that funding has gone down over time, or that schools are funded based on property taxes. So if you live in a rich county or town, you're going to have more money than the inner city schools. None of that is true. It's it's blatantly false. They can't even argue. There's it's not like some legal, re, you know, they're not like using some loopholes. They're just straight up lying. Um, but they repeat it enough that people start to believe it. Um, uh, one of the things, so here in, you know, look at coronavirus, the money that they got from coronavirus was more money than the Marshall Plan that reconstructed Europe after World yeah. War II. And, and, you know, schools were not even open. Where did the money go? Where did the here money in, go? Here in Fairfax County, you know, I watched a school board meeting where the superintendent goes, you know, we have so much PPE, the personal protective equipment like masks, that our warehouses are full. We have nowhere to store it. We have entire warehouses just brimming with masks. But schools are closed, so we're not even, you know, using them. And the union tweets the next day, if you want schools to be open, then you better fund PPE so it's like this shit, they are just straight up lying and it's an extortion attempt to, to, you know, your kids will only get education if you give us money. Yeah, it is extortion um, and it's fraud because in my opinion, they are promising They, you know, I, I said to someone, I was trying to talk to someone the other day about this and I was like, okay, let me, two thirds of kids aren't graduating from school with the skills that they need to be successful in life. What if two thirds of the time that you put your garbage out on the side of the, the street, they didn't come back and pick it up? Would you be okay with that? And it was an older gentleman. And he said, well, no, I'd be, I'd call him. I'd say something. I said, well, that's what's happening with our schools. <laughs> um, they're, they're not, they're, they're, you're paying for a service and they're not providing that service to the children of America. And it's time we call them out on that. And it, they have money, they're, they're misallocating the funds and they need to be held accountable for it. In my mind, it's criminal. These kids do not have time to waste. They were behind before Luke right? They were coming in behind before. And now they're so much further behind because of COVID. And we really need to address that. And DEI as the entire plate of, of education that they're going, that they're getting in schools is not the answer. And it has to stop. And I think it only stops with parents rising up and speaking out. And so I just want to say thank you for writing this book. And I hope that your work's going to inspire parents to get more involved. Parents, go out and buy Race to the Bottom uh, by Luke Rosiak. It's um, out um, now, hopefully by the time this podcast airs. Um, And I hope that it inspires you to get more involved and possibly run for school board because the truth of the matter is the people that are serving right now, there's nothing special about them. There are some great ones. There are some heroes, don't get me wrong, but there are a lot of people there that have no business being there, that a lot of them that have been there for years and years and years, they own where we are. I'm talking 20 plus years on school boards. They own this. And it's time for, for American parents to get involved in their own backyard, to run for office, to support people running for office. It's what Moms for Liberty is trying to do. Um, we are only endorsing in school board this year because we know how important that is. And you know, Luke, Uh, Our hope is that, um, and we've seen it happen, you know, we're engaging people um, in the political process at, uh, at, that have never been engaged before. I don't know if you're, re- you're seeing that too, but these are people that have never been involved in local politics before. Um, and they're getting involved now. They're paying attention. I think 2022 is the year of the parent. What do you think? I think that's right. And it's not about Democrat versus Republican. Nope. It's about people that want our kids to learn things in school versus people that don't. And that includes people who have not been politically engaged before, people who have been Democrats, but they think that a math test is a reasonable way to get into a math school. Um, it's Asians who have been discriminated against. I mean, this is if you look at polls on like who wants school choice, it's most people of both parties. It's, yeah. it's you know a strong majority. It's really just the Democratic cartels block it from getting on the ballot. So there's a lot of common ground here um, where Americans can come together around the idea that schools need to, obviously, clearly, over the many years, the people who have been in charge have done a very bad job. Yeah, and the um, results bear yeah. that out. I mean, it's not, nobody's, you're not making anything up in this book. All you're doing is telling the truth. And that's so important. And it's so important to get it out there and to kind of 
set this baseline and say, we know, we, we know the players, we see you, and, and now you know, we, we see through it, and now we're going to create a better future for our kids. Exactly. Knowledge is power. I mean, that's what we did here in, in Northern Virginia when I broke the rape story in Loudoun County. Um, you know, just parents knowing what happened set a variety of things into motion that resulted in, um, you know, a new governor who kind of takes these things seriously. Um, it, it, like you said, it's, it's up to us as parents to get to get informed. And really, the more you know, you got to have confidence in yourself because they're going to make you think that you're misunderstanding it, right. and that you're not smart enough to comprehend. Yeah. As you said, trust me, you're smarter than the than the average person running these schools. And I'm so glad the Moms for Liberty are out there fighting it. This is the most important uh important battle is to fighting for our kids and and um it's just i don't know what we would out we would do without uh the moms for liberty and these these uh mama bears all across the country fighting for their kids yeah and other groups that are doing great work parents defending education doing great work getting these stories out making sure that people know fighting in court i know azra thomas jefferson high school has been so involved i know that she has worked so hard to get people hold people's feet to the fire and that's what we need to do and we need to do it unabashedly um there is no time for us to be scared or nervous or embarrassed or to allow um racial slurs and things that people say to us to affect us in any way. You just need to brush it off and keep moving forward because our kids deserve it. So go out, get the book, Race to the Bottom. Luke Rosiak, such a pleasure talking to you today, sir. Thank you for all of the work that you have done. Thank you to Peter Schweitzer for investing in this important work. Um, and, and we really do appreciate it. Great talking to you, too. Great talking to you, too, Luke. Have a great day. Next up, we chat with Pat, Chapter Chair Coordinator for Moms for Liberty across the United States of America. Hello, Joyful Warriors. So now you know, I say it every time, but it's my favorite part of the show when we get to chat with Pat. And when Pat, for those of you that don't, don't know, if you haven't listened to some of the other podcasts that we've done, I've known Pat for a long time. Pat and I were uh, both moms. We have uh, kids in the same grade who are now juniors, uh, but they were in school together in, in grade school. We didn't know each other well. We came together to work on our uh, children's elementary school to help to, to rene- get that school renovated. It was in a, a really bad state. And someday we need to tell that story, Pat. On we this really program, do. we really do. Um, that's like a podcast in it in and of itself. To be honest with you, I don't think we need another interview guest. We'll just have you on. We'll tell that story. Cause it's going to blow moms away, honestly. But um, yeah. we worked together on that, and and we found that we worked well together. And then Pat helped me on uh, my campaign for school board. She really ran my my school board campaign, and and was uh, became um, a really not just a good friend, but a trusted advisor about a lot of the different things that are plaguing our country. And we learned together um, about. Schools, and so today, what we wanted to talk to you about in Joyful Warrior uh, chat with Pat, right? Pat is is what mission creep, right? We're going to talk about knowing your mission and staying uh, staying to it. And I know you work with our chapter chairs around the country, and this is a question that they have a lot of the time, right? What what? How do you stay on mission when there are so many other things going on? So I'm going to let you kick it off. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, with Moms for Liberty, our mission we're we're focused on parental rights and education. That's our mission. Um, but there's so many other things that can distract you from the mission right now. There's, there's, you know, war in the Ukraine, there's, uh, you know, gas is astronomically expensive. And, um, I was talking to a chapter chair the other day and, and she said, well, I can make a case for why, uh, moms for Liberty should support opening the gas lines, um, the, the pipeline, because we're all trying to get our kids to school and to the soccer field. And I'm like, yes, but you know, that's, that's not a mission. Well, um, and the and- truth of the matter is that we know that for a very long time, parents took their eye off the ball with education, right? And oh so, my goodness. Yeah, right. We can't right. get distracted. No. So the point Parental being rights. is, the point being is that in order to be good at anything, you have to be mission focused. If you get yourself so distracted with so many other things, then you're not going to be effective at the main thing that you were called to do. And so as I'm as I'm discussing this with my chapter chairs, I'm quickly realizing that this is the same theme with our public schools is that they've lost their mission focus. Yeah, they have. And, and you know, it's so interesting. So it, 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 there are so many other things that happen um, in schools. And I've heard interesting opinions from people. I recently was at a conference and um, 
there was a, a woman speaking who speaks uh, against unions. She was a union member, and she really has a, a wonderful stance and helps teachers to get o- out of the unions, right? One of the things she said was that, you know, maybe schools don't need to have sports anymore, that, you know, they really just need to focus straight just on education. And, you know, I sat there and I thought about it a little bit, and I understand that there are there's a lot of money that goes into sports and arts in schools, and schools, but I have seen beautiful things happen because of children playing sports in school and the lessons that they learn in, in sports right and music and in art and culture and so um you know so but but there are are varying opinions about the role of those things in school um away from education but where's the mission creep happening now in school it's bigger than just the football field isn't it oh my goodness so i have a I have a lot of close friends and even family members who are teachers and one thing i'm hearing more and more often is i am here to teach whatever the subject is, but I am not a mental health professional. And in many cases, our teachers are required to be mental health professionals. They are teaching social emotional learning things in the classroom that they are not, they don't, they are, they do not have the expertise to, to teach and to handle. They're being encouraged to have conversations, private conversations with, with students um, as a, quote, unquote, trusted adult. Um, and these conversations are almost like therapy sessions. And our teachers are not equipped to do that. They need to, they, and so that's an example of mission creep. Another example may be, you know, dental care. Since when is the school's responsibility dental care? Well, all right. So I'm going to stop you. Let's go back to the first one. You know, we do have a ton of teachers leaving the teaching profession and it, and it is horribly, it makes me, I mean, it's horrible. And it makes me really sad. And it makes you have to step, you have to step back for a second and um, think about that for a minute. And I don't think they're leaving because of parental involvement. I, I mean, I, I know that there have, I have heard things been, that have been said about, well, you know, parents are giving teachers a hard time. I really don't believe that's it. I think teachers want parents to be involved. I, I think what we're hearing, and teachers are scared to speak out about it, but they don't like this. I mean, like you said, they don't like the the weight of, of having to handle um, every aspect of the, of the child, including basically like raising them, right? Morals, education, values, education in the classroom. The, it's, a, it's a lot of pressure on our teachers to be everything to that child, isn't it? That's correct. And they um, have gotten off mission. I have, I used, you know, it's not been that long ago that I was a teacher myself. I know. And one of the things that I constantly said was, can you just let me teach? I just want to teach. Um, and one of the things that I always tried to do was to figure out how to engage parents in the process. And, um, you know, we've talked about this before that with rights come responsibilities, and we believe that parents should absolutely um, make sure that they're an integral part of what is happening in the classroom. Um, and, you know, that responsibility falls to us, but also as a teacher, to have the support of a parent is. Um, is something that I don't know how teachers are are able to be successful without it. Um, whenever I would be teaching and um, a student is out of sorts, it's that behavior is not normal. The first thing I want to do is is reach out to the parent and say, "Hey, is everything okay? Can I help with anything?" Um, you know, and to have that relationship, that teacher parent relationship, a trusting relationship. I think we're really missing. Um, And so, yes, I agree. I don't believe that teachers are leaving the classroom uh, because of parental involvement. I think that there's been a wedge drawn um, between education and parents as there's been a lack of transparency. It's it's bred a lack of trust. And so now because parents have been pushed out, they have been separated, then you have a situation where the teacher don't have doesn't have that support that is so vital and um you know no even with math per se um when i would send home work i would say we did this in class 
I want you to do this with your child at home because sometimes you can explain things better than even I did. You know your child better than I do. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, parents understand their background knowledge. They understand their speaking vocabulary, especially with younger children. And lots of times they're able to explain things even better than I can. And so to have that continuity between school and home is so important. So then when we talk about mission creep, then now we have this situation where there's a lack of parental involvement for whatever reason. And now the teacher has to now fulfill more than the original mission was, which is to teach the, the content. Teach the right? content, right? Yeah, actually, but, and, and, and to hope and to work to, for mastery of the content for the child. But yeah. to actually also do the job of the parent. Yeah, which, you know, and a lot of parents are saying, wait a second, we don't want you to do that. We want you to do the teaching part and we'll do the raising part. And, you know, and, and I know there's an argument that says that, you know, there are some children who are not getting what they need at home. And I know that's true. And I think that that's an honest conversation to have about how do we support every child and make every child feel valued and, and welcome. And so you brought up the the um, dentist, and I know people are like, "What are you talking about the dentist in school?" But I want to I want to tell people, Pat. Um, you know, it's interesting. There was a doctor who was very involved in a movement to get masks off of kids, and and it was called the Urgency of Normal. Her name is uh, Dr. Lucy McBride, and she seems like she's been lovely in many ways in fighting for children. And one of the things that she recently talked about was this idea of community schools, and she is a fan of community schools. And I can see how, from a doctor's perspective, you know, you you have the kids there, so you. And the kids need the services and maybe they're not getting them. So, you know, well, maybe we just do everything in schools. I am here to tell you, this is a very, very bad idea. We should not be putting medical clinics with doctors in schools. And so COVID should have taught us that. So every parent who is sitting there, sitting here right now and listening to this, think about a doctor's clinic in your children's school. And now they're changing the law, the age of consent, right? In California, what is it? 12? In North Carolina, it's 12. Okay, so 12 years old, child can consent to certain medical procedures. And I want parents to to think about that for a second. Do we want to have clinics, medical clinics, and doctors in schools? And what I saw, Pat, after COVID and the mission creep about all of these, and I want to get into it a little bit, the bureaucracy and the committees that were formed that really took the decision-making power away from our elected representatives that were sitting on school boards, right? Because you have all these doctors and all these experts, love the experts, telling us, you know, this has to be done and this has to be done. And and our elected representatives were not directing our children's education from the dais as school board members um, for a lot of different reasons, including the fact that, you know, you've got a huge medical committee, committee with experts experts telling you what to do, it's hard to fight against that. You're in a position now where you have to fight against that if you're going to stand up for parental rights um, oftentimes. And we saw that. So, you know, Pat, uh, the dentists in the schools, uh, that's happening, right? I mean, we're seeing that happen. We're seeing that happen. And here's the thing. A, A child does not understand their own medical history. Sometimes I don't understand my own medical history. Like it takes me a while to go back and think when I have to fill out the papers at the doctor's office. Um, and there's a many a times when a child does not know the, the things that happened at birth, for example, uh, they may not understand the things that they're allergic to, or perhaps, um, you know, like even with, um, family medical history and things like that. So we need to make sure that our schools are focused on educating our children and let the medical people focus on being medical people and parents. We need to have the responsibility when our children need to see the dentist to take them to the dentist. Now, if there's a community dental clinic where you can go and get low cost uh, or no cost dental care, um, parents should be responsible to make sure their child gets their dental care. It should not be the government's responsibility to do that. And it most certainly should not be the responsibility of our schools because the mission of our schools should be the education of our children. Well, yeah. And, and the truth of the matter is if they were doing, I mean, they're not doing such a bang up job at that, which is like, you know, why would you give more responsibility to people that seem to be struggling with the responsibility that they have been given in the first place? Which is an excellent point. Uh, you could say that the reason they're doing so poorly at educating our children is because of the mission creep Maybe. Um, and, and, you know, they've spread themselves too thin 
Or you could also say, well, if they can't even teach our children how to read and do math, why should we trust them with their mental health? Well, and so that's the thing to me right now. The, the, when I look at the state of, of what has been put on teachers and the social-emotional learning and the um, expectation that school now is, is like raising our they, – they're trying to raise our kids while the kids are there. And, and, and when I say that, I mean they're making – decisions for the child that the parents should be making for the child. That's raising your children requires you to make decisions that will affect their um, success in a lot of different ways and, 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 and them and their mental health, their physical health, their emotional health, all of those things. And so schools now we are seeing, and next week on the podcast, Pat, January Littlejohn is coming on, our friend who school put her child into a gender transition program without her knowledge and consent, began socially transitioning her child into a male without her knowing. And part of doing that, Pat, if it's not just social transition, there's medical transition. And this is where my mind goes. I think we're going to have clinics in schools all of a sudden. These kids have now consent that they can give, you know, um, uh, what Tiffany, is it? That's, yeah, you're what you're imagining is, is our children, first off, they're socially transitioned. And then the next thing, they're going to be medically transitioned, all without parental consent or involvement. And you're not imagining this. It's actually happening. It's actually <laughs> happening. Yeah, no, it is actually happening. But the hormone replacement therapy and the medicines and those types of things, if kids start having access to that at their school, I mean, we're, I'm already hearing about this transition closet in California where kids go and they change their clothes at school into a different sex, clo- into which is so stereotypical in general. I think it's interesting. But they, can, they change their clothes at school so their parents don't know what they're wearing at school and they change back before they go home. And... I mean, literally schools keeping secrets from parents. So this idea that schools are going to start doing more medical things inside of them really makes me uncomfortable. And if you're a parent, you're listening to this and it makes you uncomfortable too, you need to go to your school board and you start asking them these questions, right? Do you pay any, what medical staff do you pay? What are your contracts with different medical areas here? Sometimes schools have nurses through the health department or something that they have working in their, in their clinics. You know, what is the scope of the, the ability of the clinic uh, to interact with my child? It used to be that you weren't even allowed to send sunscreen with your child to school. They weren't allowed to apply sunscreen. That was a real thing. You right? need to be very careful about those forms that come home at the beginning of the school year where they inundate you with all that paperwork. Be very careful about those consents that you're signing. What can they well. do now, though? If Let's say they filled out that paperwork at the beginning of the year, Pat. What can they do right now if they're concerned and they want to see? What should they do? Well, the first thing they need to do is, is find out exactly uh, what services they offer, what testing they're doing, and then they need to... Um, say my child will not you you do not have my permission and it should be done in writing um to perform any medical what and you decide as a parent but you need to definitely put it in writing i i do not consent for my child to do this 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 and this yeah absolutely Um, so we're going to put some resources on the website some parent resources on momsforliberty.org website that's going to help with some of these things but right now if you sign some forms at the beginning of the year, your normal, you know, start of the year school forms, and you want to know what they said, um, go online, go to your kid's school district, um, see if they have them posted there somewhere, or call the district and say, well, you know, I so just want to review any, those forms again. Yeah, those records, according to FERPA, right, the, yeah. the, the, the federal law, it's like our HIPAA for schools. Um, federal law gives parents the right to examine those records. So um, by all means, it, you have the right to go and see those things, especially the things that you've signed. Um, but but we must stay vigilant because um, these things are coming. They're already happening in areas in the country. They've happened in Canada. I know you and I have talked about that. Um, and I've, I was just hearing um that some of our states now are looking into laws um, that would say if if a you know if a school or a doctor tried to medically ch- um, change a child's gender that they could be held liable 
And I think those laws might be something that people want to look into and, and contact your representatives in your state. Yeah. I mean, we've gone to sunscreen to changing gender in a very short period of time here in America. And the schools seem, feels like the schools are doing a lot of stuff. And the people who send their children to school are like, wait a second, when did you start doing that? We never agreed to that. Right. So again, mission right. creep. If you're a Moms for Liberty member, chapter leader, um, our mission is to, uh, to advocate for parental rights at all levels of government. Right. So we are right. defending and protecting our parental rights. They are fundamental and, and no one, the government does not give us those rights and they cannot take them away. So you need to remember that that is our mission. Um, but school's mission was to educate children, to unfold the full potential of the child. And I think going forward, we're going to have to ha- start having some real conversations about redrawing the boundary lines between school and home. Um, and, and what really what public education should look like going forward from this point on. Uh, and parents need to be a big, big part of, of that yes. decision-making process. Yes, parents, uh, we, we hold the sole responsibility for the moral upbringing and the medical care of our children. Uh, and this is something that we cannot allow the government to take over. And I used to say all the time that our children are not orphans when they go to school. They are still our children. Yes. And, and your parental about- your parental rights do not stop at the classroom door. That is correct. And so uh, if you're a parent and you're concerned about this, look and see if you have a Moms for Liberty chapter in your area. Uh, and if you don't, look on the website at momsforliberty.org. Start a chapter. Uh, the best way to go about learning about these things that are in your schools and addressing them is to have a group of like-minded people working together, doing the research together, and and even sometimes educating your school board members. Many times school board members were never asked about some of these policies that have been put into place by the bureaucrats in their schools. And so uh, many times, not only do you have to educate the community, but you have to educate your own school board members and then hold them accountable. I love that. It's all about building relationships. I really do think if we can start to have good, solid conversations and build relationships and understand each other, come together, agree on principle, right? Yeah, build relationships with your teachers and support them and help them get back to teaching again because they really do they didn't get into teaching um, to to do all this other stuff. To raise everybody yeah. else's kids, right? They have kids <laughs> of their own, teach. right? Let them teach. Right. Let the teachers teach. Them teach. We'll end on that note. Thank you, as always, Pat, for joining us with for chat with Pat today. And um, I hope you have a wonderful day. You do. Have a great one. Bye. As always, we want to thank Pat Blackburn for her effort supporting joyful warriors around the country. And that's going to do it for this week's Joyful Warrior podcast. Join us next time. United we stand. Our children. Our choice. Our future.